Bibliotherapy with State Library Victoria is a unique podcast series that offers you respite and comfort via the healing power of great stories. This series is brought to you by bibliotherapist Dr Susan McLean and State Library Victoria. Hello, welcome. I'm so glad you could join me for another episode of Bibliotherapy with State Library Victoria. Coming up, I'll share a story, One's Company, and the poem, Warning. Both of them are a reminder of how human need to feel accepted. Bibliotherapy with State Library Victoria is a collection of all sorts of poems and stories read aloud to offer comfort and a way to dwell more deeply with our experiences. My name is Susan McLean and over many years I've studied, written about, spoken about and run bibliotherapy groups to support people through life's challenges and the experiences of being human. As part of Series 2, I have selected stories and poems to help you have conversations with your inner self. Some of you may not want to have a conversation with yourself and may just want to relax and listen to the story. And, luckily, that is a choice that you and you alone get to make. And I will offer some questions to ponder. You may want to stop the podcast while you consider them, or you may wish to let them slowly percolate during the week. In this episode, I have selected a story that will help you have a conversation with yourself to reflect on how you may change who you are to suit others in order to fit in. The story is One's Company, written by Elizabeth Flux, in the Best Australian Stories, 2017, published by Black Ink. In these podcasts, I'll be reading slowly, savouring each word and providing space between the words. After the end of the story, I'll stop for a short pause to allow us to dwell quietly for a moment in the space the words and images create. You can control how long you pause for. So, relax, settle back, and let yourself listen. As they stepped off the plane, Zen's mother turned to hold his hand and was met with two different versions of her son. She tisked impatiently. There were bags to collect and paperwork to fill out. She didn't have time for magical realism. Grabbing each one of them by the hand as they made their way down the rickety stairs, she sighed in the language of what used to be home. Pull yourself together, she said. Sheepishly, the new one disappeared and Zen was one person again. He waited patiently as the customs man dug through his mother's suitcase, taking things out one by one and peering at them intently. 
Looking in one plastic bag, the man's eyes briefly lit up before disappointment settled in. He'd discovered air travel approved packets of tea and not the dried fruit or meat he was expecting. A fair-haired man casually tossed down his bag at the next table and the woman barely unzipped the top before waving him along. The customs man moved on to their rice cooker. With his blue uniform and gold badge, he looked like the policeman from the comics about famous Australians that handed out to the children on the plane. Zen saw his mother flinch but say nothing as the rice cooker was roughly reassembled before they were let on their way with a small grunt and a hollow. Enjoy your visit. Oh, we're here to stay, laughed his mother, locking eyes with the customs man. Right, he said dismissively, signalling to the next in line. She shooed Zen forwards and they hurriedly made their way out of the airport, past the smiling posters of blonde families having beach picnics. He carried a stuffed black bear, which was almost as big as he was, and as he held it, paw to hand, scurrying after his mother, he tried to imagine himself and bear in the place of the posed couple, trapped forever, clinking wine glasses against an ocean backdrop. On his first day at the new school, his shoes were wrong. Lined up outside the classroom, Zen sneakers stood out immediately against the sea of white. Too colourful, said the note sent home from his teachers. And uniform policy prefers laces over Velcro. At roll call, that gingerly announced his last name, getting confused by the unfamiliar order and mixture of letters. John, he corrected, giving in the name he'd picked from the small list his parents had come up with. It was in this extra time that his teacher noticed the shoes. Right, she said dubiously. His parents debated whether or not it was worth buying him a second pair and decided not to. It was impractical. He'll grow out of them in six months, his father said. Zen split in two again and his new self kicked out at the offending sneakers. There's no call for that, his father said. And what has your mother told you about this double act you keep pulling? Zen, sitting on the couch, raised his palms apologetically. His other, silent self, scowled and disappeared again. His parents switched on the news, and Zen sat quietly, poring over the small comic book, trying to memorise the story of Monga and his own adjustment to their shared adopted home. He'd already read it, cover to cover, but kept coming back to the same three pages, the same face. Monga didn't look like anyone from home, but he didn't look like any of the people from their new street either. 
Zen was enthralled. His parents wouldn't let him take the comic to school. How will you learn if you just read the same thing over and over? So he'd painstakingly drawn Monga's face twice, one on the toes of each of his sneakers. The other children were fascinated, but it became frustrating to try to explain who the character was. When he told them he was Australian, they scoffed. And when he said the man's name was Monga, the other children squealed with laughter. Monga! exclaimed his classmate Cody. You drew a mong on your shoes. Makes sense, chimed in Lockie, pulling at the corner of his eyes. Mongs drawing mongs. The nickname stuck. Before school had started for the year, his parents received a book list and some suggestions for what their child would need day to day. Sand shoes for PE and for going in the sandpit. A fruit box for recess. Something for show and tell. They were an English-speaking household though. Zen and his mother were bilingual. Ten years too early for the internet. And yet to make friends on their street, his father tried turning to the surprisingly unhelpful dictionary. At recess, Zen opened his lunchbox, full of carefully sliced peaches, banana and canned longan, while the other children plunged straws into tetrapacks, slurping aggressively, speedily, racing. What's that, Mong? demanded Cody. My fruit box, replied Zen after a pause. The hoots of laughter and streams of mocking gibberish followed him as he trudged towards the empty corner of the sandpit and flopped down alone. Moo moo, woo, joo, la tat. Don't touch it, it's dirty, cried his mother at the back of his mind. The ghost of her advice was right. The sand was probably teeming with germs but he gingerly started digging one foot in, then the other. And soon was grabbing fistfuls and heaping them on top of his shoes. Half sunk in, the colour and Monga's face soon got buried by the most gentle of avalanches. In the comic, Monga was just one of many, going about his life against the background that Zen had been told was the real Australia. There were sparkling oceans, there were giant fields, and there were stretches of sand, the soft yellows and oranges making a false sea more expansive than anything he'd ever witnessed. Missing were the tall towers of home, the streets packed with people. Every Saturday morning he could remember our Poe would come collect him and they'd navigate the market together. His grandmother was ruthless in her bargaining, rapidly firing off the list of what she wanted to buy, along with the price she expected to pay. Their shared monosyllanic language making conversation 
sound like rapid linguistic gunfire. Their new home was slower. People savoured sounds like John savoured the lychee Zapo would unchell and pop in his mouth to keep him from complaining when their trips went for just a little too long. The shops here were different. Clean, quiet. There were no crates leaking melted ice and fish scales onto a slippery floor. People didn't talk. They just walked up and down in straight lines, stacking plastic and cardboard on top of each other in their trolleys. Monga disappeared into the sand completely and the bell rang. Zen felt himself split in two again, but this time there was no one to tell him off. The new one stood up and followed his classmates into the schoolroom. Zen stayed in the sand and contemplated his shoes. Over the following weeks, Zen was sometimes singular and sometimes plural, something which frustrated his parents and teachers alike. His father grumbled as he was forced yet again to inflate their blow-up mattress to accommodate this silliness. The new one merely grinned and played with his tarzos. Zen ignored him. Another, firmly polite letter had come home with him after the teachers finally noticed the drawings. And he was now tracing out Monga again, this time on the soles of his new stark white sneakers, so no one would see. He sat, or sometimes they'd sit, every Wednesday as his class rotated through their turns for show and tell. There were pine cones and older brother's trophies, VHS tapes of Disney cartoons, or ticket stubs from that weekend's football. When Zen raised his hand to ask why the ball a classmate had brought in was long instead of round, the new one flushed and shuffled further away. When his week came, Zen didn't even need to think about it. He carefully packed the comic between two exercise books so it wouldn't bend in his bag. And arriving at the classroom, slipped his backpack in the usual spot above his name tag, which the teacher had cheerfully decorated with a wombat sticker. Between Hannah, Emu and Lockie, Bilby. Zen was more excited than he had been all year. He was still mong to most of his classmates, who seemed to have forgotten where they'd gotten the name to begin with. He kept quiet about the secret drawings that were slowly wearing away as he trudged from class to class and from running around in the occasional game of Chasey he would join in on when asked. I brought my comic, he told his table, sitting down before roll call. It's in my bag. You can all see it after lunch. Cody, who sat opposite, looked at him. Why? We won't be able to read it. 
Zen stared briefly at Cody before muscle memory brought his gaze back down to the desk. But he could still see the boy pulling up at the corners of his own eyes, making gibberish noises as the rest of the table giggled. He felt the split happen again, and the new one joined in a beat after the others. Zen stayed quiet, eyes fixed on the table, grinding his left shoe into the linoleum. The other children were mostly uninterested in Zen. He didn't impress them at sport, and he wasn't the best at any of the other things that seemed important, drawing the straightest lines or having the most stickers on the book chart. He knew the alphabet, but had sung different songs at his kindergarten back home, so he didn't know as many lyrics to the songs that sing each morning. On the occasions they did pay attention, it was usually to point out something he was doing wrong. Tying laces with one loop instead of bunny ears, pronouncing words differently, not knowing the difference between dress and skirt. At lunchtime, Zen retreated to his usual patch of grass. He'd just plunged the spoon into his thermos when two girls from his table ran up, halfway between upset and laughing. Cody's reading your comic, one of them said with a giggle at the end. Thought you should know. They retreated, Zen's eyes following them, then overtaking, looking over at the backpack shelf where he could see Cody and some friends crouched over something. They'd gone by the time Zen got to his bag, which was unzipped. The comic was shoved roughly in at the top, no longer protected by the exercise books. Every page was crumpled some ripped in half. The new one walked into the classroom and sat alone at his desk, slowly running his fingers over the damaged pages. Zen stayed at his bag, quietly looking down at his ruined book before clenching his fists and moving in the direction of Cody. Zen remained plural. It was okay at first, when it became apparent that the split was permanent. His father begrudgingly bought a second bed. To avoid confusion, the family decided to call the new one John. John and Zen started out quite alike, doing the same after-hours activities and speaking the language that no one else understood when they wanted to discuss things in secret during class. The line down the middle of their room began to appear slowly. Zen sighed, filling up with certificates, proclaiming his aptitude for maths and science. John's with sporting trophies and CDs. You boys are being a bit literal, scolded their father as Zen quietly ate fish with his parents while John sat in the other room, fuming that he wasn't allowed to go to the sleepover that clashed with the festival no one else was celebrating. They sat side by side 
in the middle of the night in the house where they'd lived for almost 10 years, eyes fixed on the television, watching the two towers fall after a frantic call from Apo. Their mother came home from work the next day and quietly recounted how a colleague had asked her if she'd heard the news. Yes, we watched it while it happened, she'd replied. Isn't it awful, said the woman, but your lot's okay. Zen's face tightened, while next to him John seemed not to have heard. Too engrossed in the Paul Jennings book, he'd gotten out from the library. Once a month, their mother would call Apo after discussing their health complaints and listing the meals they'd eaten that day. Apo would scold her daughter for letting Zen split into two separate people, blaming both diet and the fact that she wasn't at home enough. Then the phone would be handed to the boys to answer questions about how school was going, if they were eating enough, when they would be coming to visit. At the beginning, John and Zen would take turns answering. Eventually, though, it got to the point where John would make excuses. Homework, tiredness, anything to avoid talking on the phone. And Zen and Apo would be left alone, rattling off friendly fire. Over time, the phone calls got fewer and further between. Even so, it took Zen a surprisingly long time to realise that people had stopped seeing him altogether. It took him even longer to realise that it was John who had done this to him. He came home from school one day to see that his bed had been packed up and put in the garage. As he turned to go back in the house, his hand passed right through the doorknob. John refused to give him an explanation. He screamed and shouted and begged, but his corporeal self pretended not to hear. Zen sunk to the ground and found himself dragged along in John's wake, an invisible wall forbidding him to get more than 10 metres away. Ah, shut up, Mong, was the most he got out of John in six months of solitude. He couldn't remember what the original manga looked like. The crumpled book was still squeezed in on his shelf. But you can't turn pages with faded hands. It took a few years, but Zen got used to the silence. He lay dormant, watching himself reply to his mother's hometown questions in English watching himself refuse to take leftovers to school anymore. He watched as the calligraphy set from Apo got dusty, got moved behind the trophies, and eventually found a home at the back of a cupboard, the wax seal on the ink never breaking, as the liquid slowly dehydrated, turning to residue, unusable. He filled the long, lonely stretches by drawing invisible pictures, 
His bedroom became the market as he traced his finger along the wall, creating crates and cages and characters who existed even less than he did, disappearing centimetre by centimetre in his wake. The times he felt seen were few, and he didn't know if they were just the product of a desperate hope. In their monthly call, Arpo congratulated John's mother on finally getting him past his phase, though when the phone was handed to John, her disappointment at hearing, Jui am chi amming bark, more than anything else, was readily apparent. Put me on the phone, begged Zen. I can help. Zoigay, goodbye, see you again. John hung up the phone. It was university holidays and Zen watched as his friends, who'd never met him, sat around a table, growing hazier with each round of the drinking game they were yet to grow tired of. A circle of cards surrounded a jug filled with a mixture of drinks and he saw himself pull an ace. Rule! The group shrieked as one. But they were stumped, awash with power and dulled by alcohol. They were at a loss as to how to wield it. There was silence. A boy with slightly darker skin than the rest stole a sideways glance at John as he sat running his index finger along the edge of the card, waiting. I know, he said with a grin. We all have to speak in our first language or drink. Sen found himself sitting in John's place, the card now in his hand. People were looking at him. He burbled out a sentence in his long, silent voice, perfectly pronounced. His friends laughed and continued drawing cards. Zen smiled, and behind him in the corner, John was furious. When the final king was pulled, ending the game, the rumble switched them back, and both sat in sullen silence. One filled with anger, the other hollowed out. Arpo's visit came at the worst possible time. In that period between exams finishing and getting results back, John was nervous, worried about failure in a year when the absence of school structure had exposed his laziness. Visit, he intoned during their phone call. Visit, she'd shot back. Visit. The language they'd once shared had no call for the letter V. Ho loy, make gay. John sat alongside himself in the back of the car, watching Zen's knee bounce up and down as he gazed out the window. Their father found a park close to the entrance, and they all clambered out. They saw the poster at the same time. Out of the corner of his eye, John could see Zen, looking down at the memory of colourful shoes, long since thrown away, 
then back up again, comparing. He blinked, turning away from Zen, then stared straight ahead at the face he hadn't seen since he'd wedged the crumpled comic in between two thick books, wincing as his bruised knuckles touched against the spines. Dewey M. Zuju, he said, the words stiff, formal and unheard. I'm sorry, he said to himself and to no one. After listening to the story, One's Company, let's take a moment to explore its messages about assimilation and acceptance, and especially its emotions in childhood years. I wonder what image lingers with you. Was it the image of Zen arriving in Australia and being treated differently from the moment his family got off the plane? having their bags searched while watching a fair-haired man casually toss down his bag at the next table and be waved through with hardly a glance. This was when Zen's mother first noticed two different versions of her son. What did you think about Zen changing his birth name to John when people couldn't pronounce his name? Zen would often become John when trying to recreate what he thought a normal Australian person was, trying to assimilate, trying to be accepted, and trying to blend in, Zen shifted further and further away from his own culture. Did you notice how Zen used a character, Monga, in a comic book to help with his challenge of adjusting to his new adopted home? often reading the same pages for comfort. And years later, it was the comic again that triggered emotion. The comfort Zen gets from his manga comic book is a demonstration of bibliotherapy. Any book can provide bibliotherapy. What is important is that the story possesses a recognisable psychology. What is important is providing a meaningful way to connect to the story. Our childhood is often marked by assimilating, trying to blend in, trying to fit in, trying to be accepted. Have you ever had that sense of watching yourself hide? What is it that you observe when that happens? Next, I'll read the poem, Warning, written by Jenny Joseph. So again, I invite you to relax, settle back and let yourself listen. When I am an old woman, I shall wear purple with a red hat which doesn't go and doesn't suit me. 
and I shall spend my pension on brandy and summer gloves and satin sandals and say we've no money for butter. I shall sit down on the pavement when I'm tired and gobble up samples in shops and press alarm bells and run my stick along the public railings and make up for the sobriety of my youth. I shall go out in my slippers in the rain and pick flowers in other people's gardens and learn to spit. You can wear terrible shirts and grow more fat and eat three pounds of sausages at a go or only bread and pickle for a week and hoard pens and pencils and beer mats and things in boxes. But now we must have clothes that keep us dry and pay our rent and not swear in the street and set a good example for the children. We must have friends to dinner and read the papers. But maybe I ought to practice a little now so people who know me are not too shocked and surprised when suddenly I am old and start to wear purple. What lines of the poem reached out to you, calling to be enjoyed a little more? I shall go out in my slippers in the rain and pick flowers in other people's gardens. Or perhaps it was, and eat three pounds of sausages at a go, or only bread and pickle for a week. And like the character in the poem, I hope you practice a little now. And don't wait until you are old to be your true self. I look forward to talking to you next time when we think about what it means to believe in yourself. If you would like to get in touch, you can send an email to inquiries at slv.bic.gov.au you. Thanks for joining me and to finish this episode I'll leave you with a reread of Warning. When I am an old woman I shall wear purple with a red hat which doesn't go and doesn't suit me and I shall spend my pension on brandy and summer gloves and satin sandals and say we've no money for butter. I shall sit down on the pavement when I'm tired and gobble up samples in shops and press alarm bells and run my stick along the public railings and make up for the sobriety of my youth. I shall go out in my slippers in the rain and pick flowers in other people's gardens and learn to spit. You can wear terrible shirts and grow more fat and eat three pounds of sausages at a go or only bread and pickle for a week and hoard pens and pencils and beer mats and things in boxes. But now we must have clothes that keep us dry and pay our rent and not swear in the street and set a good example for the children 
We must have friends to dinner and read the papers. But maybe I ought to practice a little now. So people who know me are not too shocked and surprised when suddenly I am old and start to wear purple. Join Dr. Susan McLean next Monday for another episode of Bibliotherapy with State Library Victoria. For more information about the series, head to www.slv.vic.gov.au forward slash bibliotherapy.